Welcome to Bug Banter with the Xerces Society, where we explore the world of invertebrates and discover how to help these extraordinary animals. If you want to support our work, go to xerces.org slash donate. Hi, I'm Matthew Shepard in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Rachel Dunham in Missoula, Montana. Fireflies. Just the word evokes for many people memories of summer evenings filled with magic and awe. From their flashy mating displays to their glowing larvae, these iconic insects have captured our hearts. Unfortunately, fireflies have started to disappear from our landscapes. What is causing this decline and what can we do to help? Joining us this week to talk about these incredible insects is Richard Joyce. Richard is an endangered species conservation biologist at the Xerces Society, where he works with researchers and land managers to survey for and conserve fireflies and coordinates many aspects of the Firefly Atlas, a nationwide community science project. Welcome, Richard. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Matthew. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and I've enjoyed listening to the show so far. Great. Awesome. Well, to start off, Last month, we talked about beetles and learned that fireflies are not actually flies, but in fact, beetles. But there's something really special about these particular beetles is that they light up. So to start with, can you tell us how many different types of fireflies there are and do all of them light up? The short answer is we don't know exactly how many species of firefly there are in the world, but the number of described species, so those with the scientific name that are kind of known to science is at least 2,400. Um, and there are many, many species that are still being described every year, especially from tropical regions um, like South America and parts of parts of Africa. Um, within the United States, um, I think the latest tally is 174 named species. And just in um, 2023, uh, two more species uh, were were described. So it's not a fixed number, um, and hopefully it will it will continue to go up as we get to know our fireflies better. Yeah, I, I find it intriguing. You think that fireflies is a group of insects that we would know pretty well, and yet, as you're saying, we we even now we don't know exactly how many species there are, which is, I guess, indicative of. Um, the broader situation with so many insects where there aren't enough people looking to understand them. Yeah, yeah definitely. So. It, it follows that follows that pattern for, for insects. And uh, Rachel, I think I missed the second part of your question about whether all fireflies uh, light up. Um, and it really depends uh, what what time what part of the firefly's life you're talking about. So the vast vast majority of um, fireflies or beetles in the family Lampyridae um, do produce light during some part of their uh, their life cycle. Um, for for almost all fireflies, that's during their larval phase. Um, there are um, groups of fireflies that have um, probably lost the ability to produce light as adults, um, and they use other um, other processes or functions to, to to do what they would do with light other ways. So what what would they do with light? Why why do they light up? Fireflies light up to communicate. Uh, their light is a is a is a message. Um, and the 
the entity receiving that message um, or the intended recipient for that message is going to vary depending on what life cycle, uh, what life stage the, the firefly is in. So in the first part of their life cycle, when they're an egg or a larva, that glow is telling potential predators um, that they taste really bad um, and that they're toxic. Um, so it's kind of like the warning coloration, the you know the bright orange and black of a of a monarch butterfly, except it's at night. Um, so you're you're giving a a warning signal to to predators. Um, the fireflies that light up uh, with a flash or a glow um, when they are adults, um, that communication signal is actually for their own species. And it's for communicating with um, potential mates. Um, so either the males saying, check me out, check me out. I would be a great mate. Or the females um, kind of just letting males know where they are. Um, and in some cases, actually selecting which, which male that they want to mate with. Yeah. So do, do different species have different flashes? I mean, other. If they're looking for a mate, they don't want to get confused, surely. <laughs> yeah, they do. It's kind of, um, I've heard some people compare Firefly flash patterns to uh, to Morse code, um, Morse code patterns. Um, I think another good comparison is to bird songs. So different species are going to have um, different flash patterns, and those are kind of characterized by specific timing. Um, it's almost like a particular rhythm um, and also by the kind of the shape of the flash. So that might look like um, kind of a trembling flicker. It could look like an upward moving uh, swoosh of light. And in some cases, um, it's going to be kind of a sustained flow that just kind of hovers um, over the forest floor. Yeah. And are there different colors? I mean, I, I've almost never seen fireflies, at least the light up ones, because where I live in Oregon, we're, we're just in the wrong part of the country. But visiting relatives in Chicago, I've seen them there and they were green. And I've seen some photographs that have been more yellow. So presumably color helps communicate to the right species as well. Yeah, definitely. The uh, I'd say the most uh most common colors are yellowish green and greenish yellow. <laughs> um, that's kind of where, where things tend to concentrate. Um, but you do have a spectrum kind of from, um, from green to, to orange or even kind of slightly, slightly reddish. Um, and one pattern that you see um, quite often is that the fireflies that display at dusk, um, so a lot of people... Are familiar with the the Big Dipper firefly in the eastern um, and southern U.S. Um, and this is the firefly that will display um, before it's truly dark. Um, some people say that you can they start flashing when you can still read um, you can still read with the with the last of the daylight. Um, so fireflies that flash at dusk tend to be much more yellow. And that yellow light stands out a lot better against um, just sort of the light that's reflecting off of green leaves. And then once it's later in the evening and it's fully dark, um, you tend to see um, the, the more greenish glows and, and flashes. Um, 
So sometimes that's a different species, and sometimes it's even the same species that will shift its color tone over the over the course of the evening. Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize they could change colors. No. <laughs> some some of them can. Some of them can. Yeah. Um, the other factor that comes into play is just our our vision. Um, so the probably the, the people who see fireflies uh, most uh, closest to the wavelength that they actually are are young kids with really great vision. And then as we as we age, sometimes um, the it's harder to pick up the the color or or the the weather conditions like fog or water vapor in the air can also shift the colors a little bit. Because I guess our, our, our eyesight is different from the fireflies' eyesight, so we must perceive the colors just slightly differently. So. Yeah, more more than slightly differently, I think, uh, for the between us and fireflies, um, mm. they don't. Uh, you know, they're very they're not very sensitive to the color red, though they can see it a little bit, and they can also see ultraviolet light, which we can't see. So you talked about. Um fireflies lighting up at different life stages. So some light up in the larval stage and those are the glow worms that you're talking about that we fondly know them as. <laughs> so yeah, glow worm is a, is a very tricky term because it can mean, it can mean about four different, it can mean about four <laughs> different things. Um, and one of those things is um, a fly larva, like in New Zealand, there are these um, um, fly larvae in caves that produce, they actually produce like an actually blue, a blue mm -hmm. light. So that's one, one thing that glowworm can refer to. Glowworms can also refer to, um, a kind of a firefly cousin called the, also called the railroad worms, mm -hmm. um, where the females look pretty worm-like, um, and they produce light, um, but yes, a lot of people will refer to kind of baby baby fireflies as glowworms because um, they're wingless and um, look a little grub-like. Um, and then the fourth the fourth thing that uh, um, that glowworm can refer to is basically a, a life history type uh, within the firefly family, where um, it tends to be just the females that that glow. Um, and they don't have wings and they look kind of larvae-like, larva-like. And then the males do have wings and they, some of them produce light, some don't, but they're, they're kind of flying slowly through the forests or through gardens looking for, for females. So the, and the example of that would be like um, the glowworm in James and the Giant Peach. Um, most of the, most of the fireflies in Europe are of this glowworm variety um so the common names for for fireflies tend in different european languages um tend to be some variation of things that are worm-like rather than things that are fly-like interesting and so do all so within these different life stages and you have all these different species of fireflies do all fireflies that light up as adults also glow when they're in the larval stage Yes. Yeah, so producing light during the larval stage is much more of the rule. We used to say, oh, all, you know, every single firefly, every member of the family Lempiridae um, produces light during the larval stage. And then a few years ago, uh, it was a good lesson in like 
not using absolutes. Um, some scientists found a uh, firefly larva um, on these mountains in South America um, that weren't producing any light. Um, and the other really wild thing about these firefly larvae is that they were eating um, toads. So you have beetle larvae um, predating amphibians. Um, huh. So... You know, I'm 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 always cautious to say uh, all or none uh, when when talking about fireflies, um, but in in North America, yes, most uh, all I won't say most uh, that we know of, all the larvae do uh, do glow, including including ones that uh, as adults do not produce any light. Okay. And those would probably be the ones like Matthew was saying, I grew up outside of Portland and that's where he's located. We, I didn't see fireflies growing up as a kid because we don't have the adults that light up, but we do have fireflies, right? In the Pacific Northwest. You do, you do. pretty much. Oh, yeah. you know, every, uh, every state in the continental U.S. has some kind of firefly. Um, and in California and in like very um, southern Oregon, you have the California pink glowworm, which is this really neat um, beetle um, where the, the, the females um, don't have wings. And there are these little little pink things that will climb up on a rock and glow this greenish this greenish light. Um, there's also something called the Douglas fir glowworm that you um, have in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and a lot of people kind of in the late fall, um, will, will stumble across these, particularly the, the larva, um, kind of glowing in the leaf litter. Oh, yeah, I, I, I've seen the, um, the adult glow, um, glow worms, <clears throat> sorry, the, the adult fireflies that we have in, in my neighborhood. And so I, I mean, I found them both, well, in my kitchen was the first time I remember seeing one, but I found them in the garden and also in the local park. I know they don't light up. So, I mean, how do they how do they communicate? Because if they can't flash to attract a mate, do they have some other? Well, I mean, because they're not talking, or maybe they are. I'm just not listening. It may be right. more of a it may be more of a one way signal um, mm -hmm. for these fireflies. So, um, research was recently done on the the winter firefly, which is um, similar to the to the um, daytime fireflies that you have in the Pacific Northwest that used to be in the genus Alicnia. Um, really handsome little dark beetles with some kind of pink on the on the head shield or the pronotum. Um, so they're using they're using chemical signals. So the females will give off um, some sort of pheromone or chemical signal, and then the males will use their their antennae um, to follow those those kind of scent trails um, through the air and and find the females. Yeah, I mean, flashing must be a little bit limited in the distance, you know, because the, each has to be able to see. So pre presumably, the pheromones allows them to find each other without being able to see to start with. Is that right? I think there's there is some research that suggests that um, even in fireflies that uh, that produce light, for example, the blue ghost uh, firefly, which is a type of, of glowworm firefly, glowworm in the sense of having flightless, flightless females, 
um, that they they may use yeah chemicals chemical cues at a distance and then once they're up close um, light will light will come into play. And is the light also created from chemicals, much like the pheromones? It is. So um, I'm not the best person to explain the chemistry of it because it's been a long time since I uh, took uh, took chemistry class. But um, it is a it's a chemical reaction that produces the light, and this this reaction isn't um, isn't unique to fireflies um, in any way. It's found in a lot of different marine organisms and certain types of mushrooms, um, other types of, of beetles, like the headlight uh, click beetles. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's basically two, two chemicals, important chemicals, uh, luciferin and luciferase, uh, both, both um, kind of named for the fallen angel of light in the, I think, in the Bible. And... Um, those uh, those chemicals react with with oxygen and with ATP, which is the kind of the energy molecule that all organisms use. Um, and then there are a few other chemicals that can come into play, like calcium and magnesium ions and nitric oxide, that kind of help to regulate or like act as a as a light switch. Um, and the result of that um, of that reaction is this this light that we see um, that's very, um, very efficient. It produces um, basically no, no heat as part of that reaction. Well, I think you explained that quite well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was got a lot more than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just impressed that the fireflies can control it with such precision that they can flash like Morse code as well. That's that's, yeah, it is. It's, it's it's definitely impressive, and um, I think one of the ways that they can control it is basically um, when they inhale, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, you know, through their into their into their abdomen, they controlling the flow of oxygen can help uh, can help regulate that. So we've talked a lot about light. And that's often when we see or think of fireflies and we see them lighting up. Uh, But what are fireflies up to when they're not blinking? Because it seems like the season to see fireflies is quite short um, in the summer. What are they doing the rest of the year? Um, Yeah, so most of their most of the year and for most of their lives, uh, fireflies are in the in the larval stage. Um, So. if you if you don't if you can't picture what a firefly larva looks like, I recommend googling it uh, real quick. Um, sometimes I've described them as like a roly poly bug that's gone through a pasta press or a tiny uh, like a tar- tiny pangolin or armadillo. Um, I've heard people call them dinosaur like refer to them as dinosaur caterpillars. Um, so they're these really neat um, kind of plate. Uh, plate-covered, uh, protected uh, larvae, and a good time to see them um, if you're in the if you're in the eastern kind of eastern side of the U.S. Um, is sort of late fall. Um, is to go outside in the evening uh, when the ground is damp, like after a light rain, is really great. Um, and you can find these um, these little specks of light crawling around the around the ground. And fireflies 
before they become adults, they're just eating machines. They spend um, they spend their nights um, looking for earthworms and um, snails and slugs and probably a lot of other things that we have not been able to witness them eat, but soft-bodied little invertebrates. Um, and they're these ferocious, yeah, ferocious little predators. Um, kind of imagine coming upon a snail that's bigger than you and just shoving your shoving your head into the snail shell opening and injecting injecting a, a neurotoxin and then you know spending the next few hours slurping pre-digested uh, snail juice out of the snail shell like. That's that's kind of the life of a firefly, which does not sound like this uh, magical fairy existence um, that a lot of people might imagine. So when you know when people think about firefly habitat, it's like we really need to think about what the larvae need because most of their lives are spent um, spent as larvae, and that's when they need to eat most of their food. That's how they need to pass um, kind of lots of different. Uh, weather extremes. Um, and yeah, the, the egg phase is, is like a couple weeks and the pupae uh, phase. So like a kind of like a butterfly and like all other beetles, they, um, they do kind of full metamorphosis and um, hunker down as a pupa for, for a couple of weeks. Um, Sometimes they build those pupa in little uh, kind of igloos. Um, and there's another, there's a, a species or a group of species um, that people will, in the eastern U.S. will often find in the very early spring, like when there's still snow on the ground. Uh, if you walk around and check um, kind of the south sides of, uh, of tree trunks, you can find um, larvae that have climbed up the uh, Climbed up the, the the tree trunk, and they've attached their sort of tail to the tree bark, and they're just um, gonna hunker down and pupate there in this totally exposed um, spot. The fact that any insect goes through such distinctly different stages in its life and can be so transformed between, you know, its young stage and its adult always intrigues me. Um, I mean, you obviously know a lot about fireflies um, and you must spend some of your time out doing research in natural areas or maybe backyards I don't know I mean, what what does an evening of firefly research look like well it's it's definitely one of my favorite parts of my job and it's the one of the parts of my job where I'm kind of pinch myself when I'm out uh, experiencing uh -huh. something that um, so many people have such fondness uh, for and can feel like such a kind of yeah transcendent uh, experience. Um, I will say that I'm uh, I'm often kind of in a frank, frantic state because there's so much to take in at once. So I need to plan my evenings and I need to know kind of when when sunset is, and then I need to be kind of in place where I think I need to be. Um, maybe that's half an hour after sunset. Uh, maybe it's exactly at sunset, depending on the species. Um, and then I have a, I have a thermometer with me that I um, take the, the air temperature very regularly um, because when I'm interpreting their, their flash patterns, I take these, um, 
I use a voice recorder to uh, measure the the time distance of the 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 time between individual flashes of an individual firefly, and it's really the air temperature that's going to set the tempo um, for that, or be the calibrator for the rhythm of the fireflies. Um, so I go back and forth between holding a voice recorder up to my um, up to my face while I kind of uh, count count flashes out loud, checking a thermometer, and then I'm often chasing after um, after an individual firefly with a with an insect net, trying not to uh, you know get into a a thorn patch or or trip and fall. Um, and all trying to do this in as much darkness as possible, just, you know, either with my uh, headlamp off or uh, using a, a dim red light uh, for just the, the smallest amount of light possible. Yeah. Do people ever come up to you and wonder what you're doing out there? Uh, they have. And they're often like really excited to hear that I'm studying okay. fireflies and they often have uh, something to tell me about something that they've they've seen um related to these insects because because if, if you're out in a in a space doing a seemingly odd or suspicious activity that's often when you attract attention isn't it? yeah i actually i wear a reflective vest just so i don't surprise surprise anyone mm -hmm. and i i try to you know get there early enough to let people know what i'm doing before uh before I'm <laughs> stumbling around in the in the forest uh, with very little light. So I've heard a lot of people say that they've seen fewer and fewer fireflies compared to years ago, especially when they were a kid. How are fireflies doing? Do we have any sense of what their populations are and should we be concerned? We definitely have reasons uh, to be concerned. And some of that just has to do with the patterns that we see with insects overall, um, where we're seeing um, in places where we're paying attention, uh, we're often seeing fewer species and lower numbers of the species that we do see. Um, but it's not, it's not actually a simple, simple answer because we have so many different species of, of firefly. Um, so just like with, say, birds or butterflies, um, some species seem to be doing okay. We see them um, in lots of different places, um, even in suburban areas or even urban areas, and they seem to have adapted okay um, to all the changes that have happened in their habitat. Um, but there are um, a set of species that we're, we're really concerned about, um, partly because they were pretty rare to begin with. Um, they, they live in specialized habitats. Um, some of those are on the coast and are vulnerable to, um, to sea level rise. Others um, maybe live in wet, wetlands and in drier habitats. Um, and we really worry about the impacts of drought. Um, so several years ago, uh, the Xerxes Society and uh, various partners that we work closely with um, did uh, IUCN red list assessments for extinction threat for um, a large number of North American firefly species. And about um, one in six um, species were 
found to be like definitely um, mm. at some risk of extinction. Um, and it's estimated that um, up to one in three species um, could be at risk. Um, a lot of the species, we, we just didn't know enough about where they occur or what their baseline population levels are um, to kind of make any sort of chart of what the, what the trends are. Um, and again, like, like with many insect species, um, we're lucky with a few groups, um, like some butterflies and some bees to have baseline data from 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. Um, but we kind of just need to start now and get as, as good data as we can get uh, now and maybe go back to places where fireflies were found a hundred years ago and see if they're still there. Um, because um, it's not like with, with some birds, for example, where we have pretty good data going back a hundred years for actual counts. It's not looking great for, my, for many of the fireflies and for a lot of them, we just don't know. From what we do know, can you tell us what's impacting? I mean, what, what are the kind of things that are affecting fireflies? So a lot of the things that are affecting other insects um, are also affecting fireflies. Mm -hmm. So habitat loss is a big one, you know, loss to, um, to development or to um, kind of large-scale agriculture. Um, climate change is impacting fireflies in, in lots of different ways. As I mentioned, kind of sea level rise for coastal species, increased drought or flooding, um, changes in, in seasonal climbing, and then also um, thinking about what fireflies eat. Um, you know, again, things like drought um, is, is not good for uh, the moisture-loving uh, prey species of, of firefly. Um, other, other things that are impacting fireflies include um, pesticides, uh, whether applied kind of in, in developed areas or in, in agricultural areas um, and in, in, you know, residential, in residential settings. Mm -hmm. And then uh, finally, uh, light pollution has, um, has a set of effects on negative effects on fireflies as well, mostly related to their reproduction and interfering with that, with that courtship communication that they do yeah yeah because when, it, when it's brighter it must be harder for them to see the flashes for example so. yeah exactly you know uh a good romantic relationship depends on communication and uh when that communication uh you know breaks down it's it's not good um it's kind of like um you know imagine uh, uh some sort of great social gathering place that suddenly has uh noise construction noise at a really high decibel level it's like you know not going to be not going to be the best uh yeah. courtship place <laughs> so earlier you mentioned that we just don't really know what the populations are of these various fireflies and excitingly xerces and other partners work together to start the firefly atlas can you tell us a little bit about that program and how this can help us to protect fireflies? Absolutely. Yeah, the 
The Firefly Atlas is a collaborative initiative that lets people contribute to our knowledge and protection of firefly species across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you are just a firefly enthusiast um, who has access to habitat or if you uh, work for a state uh, wildlife agency or maybe you manage a, manage a local park, there are opportunities uh, to, to go out and do a firefly survey and to document uh, with photos and flash pattern measurements and uh, a survey protocol that we provide what species you're seeing and roughly in, in what numbers. And we do have a, a set of focal species that we're really keen on getting it more information about. So those focal regions are the, uh, the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Southwest. Um, but if you're in the Midwest or even the Pacific Northwest or California, you can still uh, go out and do do a survey. You'll need to probably do a little more planning and reconnaissance to uh, figure out where and when to do that. And the the idea is to create a kind of a map and data database of of firefly records um, that can kind of complement uh, museum specimen collections. And that will give us a, a much better idea of where different species are found, how they seem to be doing, what threats are affecting their, their habitats. And in just, you know, less than two years, it's been really exciting to see, you know, young people out there doing surveys um, and, and contributing to our knowledge, um, finding firefly species in states um, that where we didn't know that they occurred. Wow. It's really helping, I think, the, the state agencies um, get a better handle on, um, you know, just the basic information of what species do we have here? Where are they found? Which ones should we be kind of keeping a close eye on um, to make sure that they don't decline or, or blink out? And so if our listeners wanted to get involved with the Firefly Atlas, how can they sign up? So going to, uh, to fireflyatlas.org, uh, you, can, you can create an account, which will then um, allow you to, to submit data. You can also uh, sign up for our newsletter and just keep tabs on um, what's been going on with the Firefly Atlas project. And even if uh, even if for whatever reason, doing surveys um, isn't going to be possible for you. There are resources where you can um, sort of create a checklist of species that are found in your state and read about uh, the different species that are most at risk. There's a lot of just educational resources about fireflies on the website. Yeah, and, and people who want to want to help out, they don't need any special background. I mean. If you they just, don't, just want to help, you can just sign up, right? You, you can sign up. There, there are a few pieces of, of equipment that you'll want, like a camera and probably an insect net. And it, it does take a, a fair amount of kind of doing your homework to, to learn the, the survey protocol. We have some training videos available on the website. And then a really important thing, too, is having really really clear communication uh, with uh, whoever's land 
uh, you're doing the Firefly surveys on and following following the, the code of conduct for for community science. So you've talked about lots of different things that are impacting fireflies, like light pollution and climate change. And obviously, we've talked about the Firefly Atlas, but there are there one or two things and simple things that people can do to help fireflies. One thing, and this might sound a little strange, is just go outside at night. Um, and there are a few things that you can do when you do that. Um, one is just sort of like take in, um, if you have fireflies near you, spend a little more time watching them and appreciating them. And, um, you know, if you're doing that with someone else in your community, like all the better. Um, I think fireflies can bring so much joy that my, my first suggestion is like tap tap into that joy and that like sense of sense of awe um the other thing that you'll notice when you go outside at night is that there may be things that are interfering with your enjoyment of fireflies and sometimes that is uh uh you know uh, a light post or um or or other outdoor lighting um and you know, even if you don't have a garden that's supporting uh, firefly habitat, you can find out more about your town or your state's outdoor lighting kind of regulations and best practices, and you can encourage uh, your local government to to take wildlife into consideration um, when doing planning of, of outdoor lighting. And then I know I'm probably going over here too many things, but the third thing I would, I would say is be, be curious about uh, how pesticides are being used in your community. So that might be, that might be neighbors doing a lot of uh, backyard spraying because of mosquitoes or ticks, and maybe they could be doing that in a much more strategic way. Um, following kind of more insect-friendly mosquito management practices. Or maybe it's how your local community government is responding to to mosquitoes and um, just making sure that they are following the the best practices for balancing public health and, um, and protecting wildlife and insects, including fireflies. That's great. I, I love your first piece of advice there. Getting people to go out and just enjoy is such a such a great thing. So, yeah, I think you know a lot of people say like, "Oh, I don't see fireflies anymore," and that's it's. I think declines and local extinctions of fireflies are part of that, um, but part of it is also people not going outside at night as much, <laughs> and when we we find. You know, we're going to be most excited about protecting uh, fireflies when we know that they're there in our communities and we're enjoying and valuing them. Definitely. Well, we're going to end here on my favorite question, and that is what inspired you to work with fireflies? I mean, how could I not work with how could I not work with fireflies? Um, I'll say that I had the the opportunity um several years ago before I joined Xerxes um, 
to work with uh, volunteers at a national park in South Carolina, Congaree National Park, um, to collect some data on the synchronizing uh, firefly, uh, Photurus frontalis. Um, and I just, I just, you know, got hooked to, to, to get to, um, again, be out at night, uh, both enjoying this beautiful site um, and uh, protecting biodiversity. It's just, um, what a combination, you know? Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Richard. It was great talking with you and learning more about these incredible insects. Really great to have you here. Thank you for talking about the Firefly Atlas as well. Thank you for having me on. Bug Banter is brought to you by the Xerces Society, a donor-based nonprofit that is working to protect insects and other invertebrates, the life that sustains us. If you are already a donor, thank you so much. If you want to support our work, go to xerces.org slash donate. For information about this podcast and for show notes, go to xerces.org slash bug banter. 